when the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. for the judges and this multi-millionaire mogul now has the best kind of goal. It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for a special interview episode. We are speaking today with Alexandra Allred, author, former athlete, advocate, all-around superwoman, I'm calling her. The book that she has recently written called When Women Stood, The Untold History of Females Who Changed Sports and the World. So educational, going over the very long and storied history of women's fights for equality in the sporting world. It really goes way back when into the times of the Amazonians, the Greeks, right up into modern times and goes over so many topics, which as you'll hear me say to Alex in this interview that I definitely was not even aware of. There was a women's only Olympics started in the 1920s, which helped towards more inclusion in the Olympic Games. The fact that many women still to this day are not able to compete properly due to medicine that there are still studies being done to this very day that do not factor in the female body into their research. So many things like that that you would think in today's day and age would be well and truly in the past is still not the case. And Alex goes into detail here a little bit about some of those in this book, as well as talking about her own athletic career. She was part of the first ever US women's bobsled team in 1994 and helped push for that sports inclusion into the Olympic Games, which, of course, it did make its debut in Salt Lake in 2002. So Alex talks a little bit about her career in that sport and just how she felt when USA won a gold medal in the Olympics in 2002 in the first ever women's bobsled event at those Olympics. It's a very in-depth chat. You're going to learn a lot in this one. You're going to enjoy it. Sit back, relax, and listen to our chat with US author and former bobsledder Alex Allred. Always love getting educated here on Off the Podium, and I have just read a book that has educated me more than I think a lot of books have in my entire adult life. The book is called When Women Stood, The Untold History of Females Who Changed Sports and the World, and for our viewers right now on YouTube, I'm going to hold that up right now as a bit of uh, advertising, and joining us now to talk about this book is a woman who wrote this book. Uh, She's written many books, has a very esteemed career, and is also a great career as well, which I'm very excited to talk about. A history maker is one of the very first women in history to make the U.S. women's bobsled team. There's so much here to talk about and learn about. Pleasure to welcome to the show, Alexandra Aldred. Alex, first of all, welcome to Off the Podium. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm excited. I I said when we first met, I you uh, I I laughed when I was reading some of your promo stuff. So you guys are awesome. <laughs> well, that's the goal has been over seven years, Alex, is to make someone laugh. So thank you for being the first. <laughs> that's um that's a big honor for us to finally uh, have here on today. I, in all honesty, so much education came out of this book because the fight for equality when it comes to so many people out there in, in everyday life, let alone obviously sport, uh, you know, still to this day we're fighting for. But the, the history around women's fights in the sporting realms is is absolutely incredible. I, I love the story that you've told about how you came up with writing this book because it is so closely connected with your amazing bobsled career. You know, I, I realize, and thank you for that, because I realize when you're in the middle of the fight, whatever the fight is, you don't have a lot of time except for just the fight. And then when I began teaching kinesiology, um, I was getting really annoyed because I would have these the texts that the university gave, and I'm teaching off of it, and in a 300-page book, there's like three or four pages about women and that's it. And I started to argue with the Dean of the college because I was saying, if my job, if I'm tasked with teaching tomorrow's occupational physical therapists, trainers, coaches, you, you name it, how are they going to be helpful to anybody if they've only had three or four pages about women? Mm. And so that, that kind of started it. And I started teaching more about my own background to some of these um, students to give perspective and then it really was when the when i realized how many students would come up to me later and just say i googled you and i'm like yes that so that for your for your listeners here um i was sitting on the couch watching espn and i saw bobsledding and i thought and this is the coolest sport i've ever seen so i wait for the women and the women never come and I tell my college students, yes, I got in my car and I went to the library because there was no such thing as <laughs> I remember the those. internet. You know, and I, yeah, and I always see my, a lot of them, I'll see my students going, what did she say? The what? You know, the, and so I, I, but I found out that in 1940, there was a woman, there were a few women who Bob said, but it was Catherine Dewey, the, grand, the granddaughter of Dewey Decimal System, Melville Dewey, and she won. She won in a four-man bob, and she was the driver, and the only woman ever then and since who's ever won in an open competition with men. It took about two days for them to realize they didn't like that. They stripped of her medal and banned women from the sport. So in 1994, when I won the U.S. Women's Bobsled Team, um, national, you know, won for national the nationals, um, I became technically the first U.S. female bobsled Wow. I'm really the second, but I became, you know, officially the first, but I'm really the second. And, you know, I thought when that happened, okay, now it's going to get a little bit better. We, we were in Switzerland, I mean, in, in World Cup in Switzerland, we didn't have a coach. We didn't have anybody helping us. Albert of mine, his bodyguards came over and helped the women's U.S. team. Wow. And when we were in Canada, <laughs> It was the the Jamaican and Trinidad men's bobsled teams who came over and helped us. Crazy. And then when we finally got sponsorship, our men's B team tried to steal a lot of our equipment. Wow. Right? This was 1995, 96 by this time. Jeez. That's absolutely yeah. crazy to think kind of that. And, I mean, 
just even the stories there of the Jamaicans and the, the Trinidad teams. I mean, that was about the year that Cool Runnings came out. So, I mean, this story has yeah. been told of adversity for them to overcome to get into a sled. And yet there's still, you know, females in the sport can't even basically get access to simple equipment and then it's getting stolen away from them. Well, and that's one of the reasons that they help because they, in fact, my favorite box, they, I always get asked, so you knew the Jamaican bobsled team? And I'll say, yeah, Dudley Stokes of the of Cool Runnings. And I tell, we were never, because we had didn't have coaches, we were never taught how to crash. And you, you have to learn how to how to be in a, the middle of a crash when you're going down a mountain at miles an hour on what feels like cement. And we didn't know. And so I remember when we finally came to a stop and I just collapsed backwards. Oh, I just felt like I'd been beaten to death by baseball bats. And I hear, and it's the, you know, the, the spikes on the ice shoes. And the first face I see is Dudley Stokes. Because he had talked to me right before I went down. And he looks over and he goes, and mama, you okay, mama? And I was like, no, mama, I'm not okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just right out of the movie. But Didn't yeah. bring out an egg at that point, you know? <laughs> Did he? Like... No, no. <laughs> no, no, kiss my lucky ear. Like, that's, that's absolutely <laughs> crazy to think that because I heard in one of the interviews that you, you talked about sort of in one of your students around uh, Latino a- aspects in sport and kind of representation. And you mentioned that even as, you, you know, as soon as the 90s, basically they were sort of struggling for representation in sport. And then I look at that, what you're talking about now with sort of your fight and women's fight for that. And then even moving forward that we're still seeing that things like ski jumping, obviously you talk about that in the book. That wasn't only until 2014 in the Olympics. We've even seen recently as Tokyo, things like stand-up canoeing was only included for women. So so there's still this fight that you think that we've moved past this, that you think that this is something that was 50, 100 years ago, but it's still in the last 10, 20, 30 years that women are still fighting for their inclusion in certain sports in the Olympics. Yeah, it's, you know, my own students here in the, I'm in Texas, and, um, you know, and I'll teach. Women still are not, we're the only Western nation in the world whose con whose constitution does not provide equal provisions for females that blew me away when i read that alex when i read that in the book i'm like wow how is that the u.s of all countries that that is that is a thing and my students will argue yeah we are yeah and i'll say no you're not and then and we'll go round and round until i take it through it word by word and then they realize that yeah it still has not been provided we still not made those um those provisions it's crazy. It is absolutely insane to think that. And, and one of the, the most fascinating things, actually, that I learned in the book um, was around about 100 years ago that uh, Alice Milliat basically created a women's Olympics. And I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit more about this because this is something that, i be honest with you, I was completely unfamiliar with. Yes, and she did it because at the time, you know, if you remember when the Olympics first started up, we were still expecting women to wear, thir- it's an average of about 30 pounds of clothing. Mm. And so we, you know, so that was women were to wear long skirts and they really only showed their hands and the top part of their neck and their faces. And and so how, how, how can you be an athlete? And so it, I, I talked to, when I talk to my classes, I always say, it's really easy to believe that women couldn't do these things. Because when would you have ever seen them do it? So when women started to fight to get into some sports, and then, and women were allowed to get into what was considered the leisure sports, like tennis, and you know, so 
all the tennis players were out there going leisure. What? <laughs> which version are you watching? <laughs> but but those were considered some of the leisure sports. And so women were upper class women were allowed to play those sports. So the Olympics began, and so they kind of allowed women in golf and tennis to get in. But right off the bat, it was very clear that they did not. Women were not wanted in the games. That this was supposed to be going back to ancient Greece, and we and then this was about men's press. So enough was enough, and finally, this French woman who was a she she loved rowing. I mean, she was many other things, but she just decided this is unacceptable. And so when she realized that there was no negotiating with the IOC, she literally started up a women's Olympics. And the one argument they had, well, the two arguments were women physically couldn't handle the sports that they wanted to partake in, but also there wouldn't be interest. And by the way, that's a stereotype that holds today is people will say, well, women's sports aren't as interesting. And I always point out, well, did you know that the top, the most viewed sports in the Olympic games are predominantly women's sports. Mm, mm. And they're arguably different reasons, but those are the top sports, women's sports. Women are so much fun to watch, but that's just a stereotype. So what the IOC saw very quickly was the Women's Olympics was massively successful. They had more countries at one point in the Women's Olympics than they had in the IOC. And finally, the IOC finally had to say, for economic reasons, they had to, they had to legally shut it down, stop you can't use Olympics, and they they tried to shut it down. And then they essentially, modern terms, they bought out the women's games to and, and brought it into the IOC. And I just use that as a talking point in every class, just to say, yeah, you know, we have all these types that persist, but every time women get mad and go off and do their own thing, it winds up being so successful that the other group that was trying to shut them out are like, we were kidding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we need you. Yeah, which it's also. Jokes. It's fascinating, too, to sort of learn those little bits which often don't get talked about through some of these historical figures who obviously, you know, weren't too progressive or weren't too, I guess, forward when it came to their opinions on women and women's sports. I mean, you you talk about Pierre de Coubertin in this book and sort of his thoughts around women in sports and, and the Olympics and those negotiations that happened around there. I mean, again, that's sort of often not something that gets talked about in the great legacy of uh, Mr. de Coubertin, is it? Yes. Well, and take Teddy Roosevelt. Mm. And so, you know, the history behind um, both Roosevelt's actually, but the history behind desperately needing the strong white male to be to represent all things. And so it was the um, the 1904 St. Louis Games, and it was also coincided with the state fair. And so they had this idea and they brought in indigenous people from around the world. And they challenge, and they had the indigenous people pair up against trained Olympians. And mind you, these indigenous people from around the world had no idea what, much less what the rules were of boxing, different track events, and they pitted them up. And so when the indigenous athlete or these, and they weren't athletes, just indigenous people who were there, when they put the indigenous people against the trained athletes, and they had no idea what the game was about or what the rules were and didn't do as well. This was written up in um, so many papers around the country of absolute proof of white power. Mm. You know, and you just see why it was so important. And then of course, one of the most popular 
female athletes of all time is um, Babe Zaharias, Dave, Babe Dietrich, Dietrichson. And few know that she lobbied hard to get the very the first two ever black female athletes on the U.S. track team kicked off. Well, one of them, Ty Pickett, was known to be the fastest girl in America. Hmm. So why do you think, you know? Yeah. And so there's so many backstories that we just don't even know about, mostly because we never really talk about women's history. And so as I dove into it, um, and I went down a lot of rabbit holes because I was just, I was stunned at how many things I learned. I was going to ask that in terms of the rabbit holes that I could imagine this takes you in, because I, I can imagine in a project like this, you obviously will start at point A, you'll start following a certain path, but then you go down rabbit hole A, B, C, D, and then before you know it, you've maybe added like an extra five chapters because you're touching on subjects that maybe initially you didn't think were going to be discussed in the book. So when I was done, I had over 700 pages wow. of research. And, I, and I, I knew it was too long, but I just kept going because there's so much about Indigenous women. There's yeah. so much about Alaskan Indigenous women you know, just, uh, and around the world. And so I really had to just bring it to the United States, North America, just to kind of bring it in. And you read the book, so you know, I, I, I went out a lot, but I... Mostly brought it in for that reason alone, but because I was going to be teaching, you know, U.S. students. But um, in the end, I had to I had to edit down a uh, seven hundred plus, like seven hundred fifty pages, down to two hundred and thirty. Damn. And I I can tell you, I'm not a crier, but I actually shed tears over some of the women that I had to say goodbye to. I, I mean, can it was imagine. Yeah. yeah. So you're saying there's the Aura cut, basically. You could like release this on Amazon, something is sort of like the extended director's edition or something one day. Yeah. <laughs> I believe me, I saved a lot of my notes because there's women that I plan on revisiting again. But yeah, just so many rabbit holes because there was just so many crazy things that happened to just the indigenous alone. Yeah, for sure. And another one that also really fascinated me again, something that I wasn't overly familiar with too, was sort of this the notion around the medical studies around women and the fact that as you talk a lot about in this book, pretty much so much of science and medicine is based around the average male. And yet there's not these sort of separate ones. And I think you talk about, is it the bikini line essentially that besides what's under a bikini, there's this assumption that women are exactly the same when it's, it's not the truth. So, I mean, this was incredibly fascinating, everything that you were detailing around that and how that can help with athletes as well. It's, yeah, because it was referred, it's referred to as bikini medicine. Mm. And if, if a bikini covers it, then that might be a little different. And otherwise, to this day, the 154-pound, I don't know what that is in stones, but the 154-pound male, male is still used to represent women in medicine. And it wasn't until very recently that women were allowed in um, more clinical trials we react different to, to anesthesias, uh, sleeping aids, even alcohol, just over-the-counter medication. And so when they, we started realizing that we were having really adverse, dangerous, even fatal reactions, somebody finally said, oh, well, you think we should get them in their own? <laughs> uh, one of the my favorite people who I interviewed in the book was Dr. Stacy Sims from New Zealand. And uh, she was telling me that she did the Ironman. She was she was going to do great. She was putting in phenomenal times. She goes to Hawaii and she just bombs and she winds up in the medical tent and she is bad. She's not well at all. And basically the, the short of a very 
cool but long story is she's on the airplane flying back with mates from you know around the uk and all these women are like oh okay well are you about to start your period soon and she's like yeah but and so she's thinking as most female athletes have been told and we do is as long as we're not having that cycle in the competition we should be okay and stacy dr sims gets a um a lesson and education on that flight goes back to the one of the premier researchers in kinesiology and exercise science and says why do i have to find this out from other female athletes and he told her he said well in research women are a bit of a anomaly because of your hormones and it's too time consuming to include you guys in, and so we don't and that was one of my moments too, is when I went back in and dove back into the medical stuff because I was like, you have to understand this. And I really hammer it to my male co- my male students who are going to be in the field of kinesiology in some way, just to say, you got to understand this. You got to yeah. respect what's going on before you can help this person. 100%. And you think, again, it's, it's kind of one of these moments that you we live in a day and age where we assume so much things are progressive past things like this or that you know we live in the modern world where these are things that we shouldn't be having to even discuss or face but i mean as you detail in the book just some of this again obviously still happening but again that's more recent times that this is only where people like that are discovering that we still have issues in these fields yeah i i did and this was um several years ago but the mary kane story Mm. and for those who don't know in the united states she was dubbed the fastest girl in america Mary Kane was a long-distance runner. She was on her way to the Olympic Games. And Nike calls her, and they want to bring her into the Nike Project. And, you know, if you're a young athlete just coming out of high school, are you kidding me? Yes. And so she went, and the mostly male coaching staff had no idea about the female triad, you know, in terms of nutrition and all the things. Why women, female, the, the, the biological female athlete feeds different nutrition and needs different things. So they arbitrarily picked a weight that they thought that she should be and um, literally starved her to death. Uh, She stopped getting her period, all kinds of negative issues, stress fractures, all caused by an unprofessional Nike staff. And um, she was nearly suicidal before she left the Nike project. They destroyed her career. Mm. And, you know, I, I let my students know more female athletes anybody will ever know had their careers destroyed not on purpose by but by people who never taught that the biology of the female has special needs and and needs different kind of training because it's even the discussion around you mentioned it there something like a menstrual cycle that it's still a taboo subject a lot of people mainly men don't want to talk about it and it's something that through studies as you discuss in the book you know, it's a variety of different ways that women will react, athletes will react, kind of, as you were saying, in the lead up when they're on it, or I suppose even afterwards as well. I am celebrating the fact that more female athletes now, you've seen there was a, a go- I've gone going blank on her name, but there was a, a golfer and a Chinese, um, I think a, a New Zealand golfer and a Chinese swimmer. And they did poorly at the, at the, at a golf tournament and at the Olympic Games. And both said to the reporter, yeah, well, you know, I got my period, so um, I just didn't do as well. And then the reporter was just going, oh, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did we take a break? You know, they just didn't know how to react. And women celebrated that because it was so fun to hear somebody just say, this is what it is, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean, it's it's a, it's a natural part of life, right, Alex? And it's sort of... That's right. It, it, and it, if we're... That's what I tell my students. I say, if you're going to be a coach, a trainer, a therapist, and you're afraid to have this conversation, yeah. please find another job. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's uh, yeah. very, very good advice. It's it's so fascinating to go back to sort of the, the Women's Olympics, Alice Millia, and it kind of as you discuss about how it happens and the amount of people that show up, show an interest to kind of showcase just that interest that is out there for women's sports. And it's kind of that cycle that we still find ourselves in, right? Whereas, you know, we see currently record attendances for so many different women's events. We've seen that in the UK with, with, with soccer. We had it here in Australia a couple of years ago with a cricket tournament. At the time of us recording this, the, the Women's World Cup is going to be in this country in just over a month's time. We're seeing record yeah. numbers of tickets, tickets being sold. But it's still always that level where, it makes the news because people are like surprised, aren't they? Like, oh, look how many people showed up. Look how many. I mean, do you think we're ever going to reach a day where it's just going to be like, oh, 82,000 people showed up, a low number to a women's game? Like, why is this still so shocking that that many people are showing up to these events? Well, okay, so there's so many. Oh, my gosh. You you triggered me in so many ways. (laughs) Good. I like that. That's what we want to do here, Alex. (laughs) So we – um. Yeah, you know, we still live in a world in which there is a feminine ideal. Um, for example, there's a reason why women's gymnastics and women's volleyball and women's ice skating is the, are the, the most popular because they're petite and they're pretty and, and they show a lot of skin. Whereas the WNBA, you know, men don't want to see large, la- large boned women. And I'm not saying that statement. I actually read that a, a, a sports commentator said those exact words. And so it's really hard to sell, as Brittany Griner said many, many years ago, it's hard to sell the sexy on the WNBA. Mm. And so it's just a lot easier for people. So soccer is always popular because there's still cute, smaller females with ponytails running around. You know, that's, again, another description. So if it checks all the boxes, then it can be really, really popular, especially if little girls like it. So that that's helpful in that one regard. But I think we're always going to have a problem just really letting ourselves delve into the idea that the that these women are phenomenal warriors on the on the field, right? I, I was talking to one of my students a long time ago, and I said, "So here's my background. When I made the first ever." U.S. women's bobsled team, and I was squatting 375. I was clocked at running just right at 20 miles an hour. I was an animal. I was also four months pregnant. And I always say, you know, there's not a lot of – I don't see LeBron James puking his guts out four times a day, not being able to eat, being whacked out on hormones, and still being able to bring an A game. Yeah. (laughs) And so women, just women are phenomenal anyway for all the things that we have to go through physically. And then when they get to the upper level, then they have to negotiate um, the media. And men don't have to do this, but women have to decide, what am I going to be? Yeah. Am I good? You know, am I going to be, you know, on the tennis, on the tennis circuit, Anna Kornikova was called Anna Pornikova Mm. because she... And hey, props to her because she 
walked off with so much more money than the best tennis players out there. So I'm not judging her for that, but that that is the reality is that female athletes have to decide what image they want to put out there to garner more attention and more sponsor dollarships. I mean, uh, endorsements, I mean. And so that level, as you talk a lot about in the book, is sort of that male gaze and how we're still, I guess, fixated on that image, right? Whereas, yeah, yeah. The, the, the a lot of the female athletes are maybe perceived as being so much in the public eye because they're maybe selling themselves a little certain way to attract more sponsors in a way that the men don't have to do. You don't see LeBron right. James in the swimsuit edition of Sports <laughs> Illustrated. I mean, I'd love to, LeBron, if you're listening, get in a bikini. I'm yeah. sure you'd look great. But it's not It's yeah. not necessary. We, we don't talk about LeBron being the GOAT because he looks good in a bikini. Right, right. But it is so important to sponsors um, of what the female athlete looks like. So we were we were on a World Cup tour. Um, I can't remember what country. And one of the sponsors came and told all of us to be sure to have on lipstick. Wow. And you should have seen the crowd too, because if I'm being honest, there was about 30 women in there and 15 of us were gay, you know? And so to, to see, I said us, I, not that it matters, but I'm not gay. But um, it, it, it was funny, just look around the room at the reaction of all these women who were like, what the did he just say, mm. are you sick? But one thing we have on helmets. Yeah. But that was one of the first things, the advice we found out later on. So we can talk to you guys, to the men. We were like, what did he say? He went and told them about the conditions of the track, you know, how the, the, the track was back. You know, and him tells us to be sure we're wearing a lipstick. So, you know, until we can get past that kind of mindset on the mostly the male side of the sports world, um, and that's when I think things are going to improve. And they really are improving. You know, I am optimistic, but every now and then, I, you know, I just, at the rock, what was it, two years ago in Moscow at the rock climbing competition and the, the angling of the camera to go up the crotches of female climbers was so overt they actually cut the feed mm. because it was that bad. Yeah. And so, you know, you just get that kind of stuff. And um, yeah. Does it, so it's easy to go down those, that rabbit hole. Well, I was going to say, uh, without without trying to like go down that, that path again, I mean, is it a case of, as we are seeing these shifts towards that in the future, that it, it obviously will be a gradual thing, but outside of, you know, moments like that, I know that we're obviously – seeing a lot more women executives in sport, a lot more women coaches, a lot more, even in the media, a lot more women commentating sort of male predominant sports. I mean, I know here in Australia, you know, we're seeing that now that basically all our very male heavy sports are often fronted by females now to sort of get that so that some young girl watching can see, well, that is a pathway for me that it's a lot more accepted and maybe we gradually just see that so that again in 20, 30 years time, we're not having these conversations anymore. It is just part of our daily life that there's women's sports on one channel, there's women's that like this, this, that's sort of the change that is needed that gradually it will hopefully occur. It will, you know, and we're always going to have this conversation. Yeah. I I do think that. I do think we're always going to have the conversation. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and, and I have a lot of students who are very feminine and they 
they love the traditional female sports and they're not into, you know, the more extreme sports. And so, and I always tell them, I'm like, quit, quit apologizing for that. You know, we want gymnasts, we want the cheerleaders, we want all those things and we want you to want that. So I think we're always going to have a conversation. And like I said, I think that's fine, but for the athletes more extreme, you know, I just, I hope that we'll stop having conversations about what she's wearing yeah, and really talk about what she can do. And, and we're going to get there. I mean, I'm pretty optimistic. <laughs> That's good. That's what we like, Alex. Yeah. Just touching on on your bobsled career. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating sort of just reading that insight. And again, everything that you've discussed around that and all of that sort of stuff. But obviously, 2002 happened. You mentioned Jill Backen in the book. Obviously, she goes on to win that goal with Vanetta in Salt Lake. And it's also fascinating to think that that was, a, what, a 52, 54-year drought that the U.S. had had at that point for a gold medal in the sport of bobsleigh, which right. again, I'm I'm always one for these droughts. I love it when a drought is broken in the Olympics and everything along those lines. But just what, what was that? How was that for you? I guess this is my question. Like, obviously, I'm sure you're thrilled. You've had this fight. You've got it in the sport. But was there part of you that sort of was disappointed that you couldn't have been in the Olympics, or, or maybe you could have? Like, what's the oh. story around that? Like, oh no, 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 not at all. In fact, because I get and thank you for asking that because I get asked that question a lot. So I got into it because I actually, when I went to the library that day, I couldn't believe that women weren't allowed in the Olympic Games. And so I wrote, I began a very obnoxious letter writing campaign um, using the U.S. postal system. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was, I wrote letters. This isn't fair. This isn't right. And it it just so happened. So I'm a fourth degree black belt. I used to be a competitive fighter at the time. And so I'm thinking, what does this tell me? that I, I'll come over there and kick their ass. <laughs> and so I'm writing all these letters to the USOC, the IOC, and one day I get a phone call, and I'm, I have a six-month-old baby, and I get a phone call that says, okay, we're going to have our first ever U.S. women's trials. Are you coming, big mouth? And after you trash talk for that long, what are you going to say? Oh, it's just for you. And so I was like, yeah, I'll be there. And I remember hanging up the phone and thinking, I have no idea how to bobsled. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so literally it was just, I crashed a lot, but I, every time I kept missing my baby at the time, I kept thinking I need to get out of this. Then somebody would say something and it would just piss me off. And so I thought I got in it just to make sure that others would get in it. And then we were going to go somewhere with it. Fantastic. And then it was in the spring or yeah, the early summer that I realized I'm pregnant with baby number two. And I had this moment of shit. I mean, I was happy, (laughs) but I was like, I can't drop out because Mm. if I dropped out, there'd be so many people who would say, yep, you see, you you open something up and they all run off and get. And so I thought, "I I cannot, I cannot tell anybody. And I can't, I can't quit. And so I wound up working with this um, top OBGYN, OBGYN researcher from Case Western. And um, I literally had the treatment because I was hooked up to everything to make sure that my baby was never in distress. And um, man, I was crushing it. Like I t- told you, I mean, I was just sprinting plyometrics, heavy lifting. And then I went and I won. So here I am and I won. And this was such an amazing moment because not only did this happen, but I'm, you know, my baby's with me and my team, my new, my newly named team is che- is chanting that I cheated because I had two, you know, there was, there were two of her pushing that. So 
And so it's such a great moment. And uh, I'm getting the gold medal put around my neck. And the then director of the U.S. Bobsled Federation leans over to me and he says, and this is with Sports Illustrated right there taking a picture, whispers, and he says, you know, this means nothing, right? And I went back and we all went back to the training center. We were, everybody met up in my room and I told everybody what he said. And we, we the eight women, we made a the first ever team stay in as long as we can, except for an injury. Nobody drops out until we make the Olympic Games. And so that was for the next four years. I put up with more bullshit from men than I ever did in my whole life. And I did all sports. I mean, I was in martial arts in the 1980s, but this was such a horrible experience of the way we were treated by our own countrymen. Uh, just, and they were willing to let us crash and break bones so that we would we would pick up our things and go home. And so, and all of us collectively, we had unbelievable injuries that probably should have never happened. And Bob said it's a really dangerous sports in, sport anyway, but we, except for a few, we all stayed in and more and more came in and we all stayed in. And I remember I got the phone call in 1998, yet another season. I was beat down, broken down, had two kids. And um, I got the phone call. They're going to announce that women have just made the 2002 Olympic Games. And I said, hell yes. And then I retired. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Jeez, you, you done, yeah, you done so, what you needed to do at that point. You got it in? Yeah. I'm, I made a pact that I would stay in until I knew the women were going to be in the games. And then I was out. So you weren't tempted at all? You weren't tempted to carry on for another four years just with that prospect of an Olympic appearance? I missed both of my daughters taking their first steps. I missed both of my daughters getting their first tooth. I missed a lot that I just couldn't get back. And um, during the dry season or off off season, when you when you do land training, um, I would t- take my daughters with me pretty much everywhere we would go that I could bring them. But you know, when I was over when I was competing and I was sliding overseas, I couldn't have them with me. Mm. And so I, I knew that um, I just missed too much. And I, I genuinely have no regrets because. Um, I, a woman named Liz Persmedsat and I, we co-authored the, we wrote the first ever U.S. Women's Bylaws for the Bobson program. And so like my fingerprints are on a lot of things. I'm pretty, I'm real happy about that. But yeah, I, I just, after that, I didn't want to miss any more firsts for my kids. So what was that moment then when Jill and Vanetta win that goal? Were you there in Salt Lake to witness that? My sister and Liz Persmedsat were. And um, it was phenomenal because, and it's funny um, that you keep, you, you say Vanetta Flowers, everybody does, but the story behind that is Jill Bakken, who was the driver um, and, and won the gold. Jill Bakken was the only one to make it to 2002 from our original eight. Wow. Yeah. She was 18 when, when we had her on the team with us when she first started. And then she got to the 2002 games. Fantastic. I love that. The original light. There's a movie there. Like, I mean, again, screw cool runnings. I'm sorry, guys. But like, come on, this sounds like this is more entertaining. I want to, I want to see this movie. Oh, you don't even know. In fact, it's funny you say that because I have been writing a screenplay for it. Talking to a couple of people because we, it's way funnier. If you, if you did cool runnings, but you made it like a league of their own. Yes. This was women's Bob said, because. One of our teammates was a five-time world powerlifting champion wow. who was squatting 625 pounds, you know, and so she'd come up to the track and even the men were like, 
I want her as my break woman. <laughs> yeah, we just had amazing stories. Yeah. Wow. And the can and the Canadian and um the Canadian and British and German women, they were amazing for us. Because their federations helped us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I was with Liz I was with Liz Pressmedstadt. We were in Germany and I was kind of looking around at our competition. And, uh, you know, my background is fighting and Liz is a shot putter and the two of us, we can throw around a refrigerator pretty easily. And so I'm saying, man, we got this. We got this. We're going to keep asking this competition. And our elevator is about to take us up and the elevator goes ding and kind of opens up. And Germans, Germany's number one team got on. And it was like the elevator even kind of went chunk, chunk, when they get when they got on. <laughs> and I... And I you know, giving head nods, being cool. And they got off the elevator and the door shut again. And I looked at Liz and I go, there's nothing wrong with second place. <laughs> it's like that same day. And then the, the team that dominated for the longest time, the Swiss is number one team. And then all, Claudia and Susie, Claudia and Susie. <laughs> and they got on the, and they got on the elevator and it was the same thing as they got off and we were like, bye. And I looked at Liz and, and she started shaking her head. And I go, there's nothing wrong with both <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <women> were huge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and now you see it, what, it's, uh, it's only ever been the US, Canada and Germany who have ever won the uh, the, the gold medals in, in the Olympics. Or in the case of Kaylee Humphrey, she went for both countries, right? So I guess uh, yeah. <laughs> that kind of works that way. Before I let you go, Alex, um, I believe you have a fun story around Australian bobsledders. I, I always like a good story around Australia and bobsledders because we, we've had many Australian bobsledders on the show over the years. So uh, I, I'm intrigued to hear this. So, well, for better context, we were talking before we started recording, we were talking about, um, you know, Aussies will let fly with just about anything and let their feelings be known. <laughs> and that's what triggered me. <laughs> so we were, <laughs> we were, we were in Calgary, world cup in Calgary. And, um, it's called the warming the warming hut warming shed up the top of the mountain that's where everybody hangs out before they go slide and so we're all up there and it's way too packed and so the and the aussie team was huge this is 19 1996 and these guys were gigantic huge probably as big as the russians and this one guy and I don't know that he owned another word except for the F word. I mean, he was, it, he, it was, it was quite impressive. He used it as, it was an adverb, an adjective, a noun, a verb. Very Australian. So, We're proud of yeah. that. And yeah. And so, yeah, he was just, he was very colorful and lighting the place up. And finally somebody had complained, you know, you can't move in here. And so finally he was like, all right, I'll clean this place out. He gets up on one of the benches and just, Farts, the most toxic fart the world has ever known, and cleared that place out after that. Wow. Yep. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is Australia in a nutshell. Um, I think, let's be honest, we've all done that here in this country. Um, I think that's. Just... I don't know, but yeah, he people people were running for their lives. Wow, what an incredible but story! All fun, yeah. I never met any Australian women sliders at that time. They I, there wasn't a team at that time. I don't even know when you got your first team. Um, I should look that up. Two, I know we had them in 2010. I think 2006 was our first team off the top of my head. I know okay. that uh, recently it's sort of been a case where we we've got 
a, a large portion who are sort of trying to get in there and we just don't have the sleds really for them. And then uh, obviously someone like uh, Bree Walker, who's been doing fantastic things in the monobob, won multiple World Cups, finished uh, six yeah. in the Olympics last year. So uh, doing, doing thoroughly. But our sliding sports, I'll say, Alex, uh, Jackie Narricott, silver for us in our skeleton last year. So for a country that I don't even think we're within a thousand kilometres of a sliding track, we were pretty proud to get a, an Olympic medal in a sliding sport last year. Hey, listen, I was talking about Australian sliders not so long ago because one of the things I was saying is I said, you can train in the, your, your athletes can go places to train. Yep. The thing about bobsledding. So this is why it doesn't surprise me that Aussies are doing really well in the extreme sports is bobsledding is people don't realize what a dangerous and terrifying sport it can be. Mm. So you got to have a really edgy person ready to just fly yep. so yeah australia yeah no wonder you guys are killing it <laughs> yeah. and there's some of our favorite athletes we've, we've had a, a bunch of them on the lead up to beijing and afterwards as well and always uh love to, to hear because it's, it is those stories i think it's kind of like it's it's the journeys that any athlete has particularly in a in a country say where winter sports aren't predominant and as you're saying these extreme sports like how do you go from being one thing to another when they're so extreme. It's not like you're just, you know, going from a sport with a ball to another ball. Like these are completely different extremes, different climates, different everythings. And we love kind of hearing stories about that. The book, what we, I'm going to try that again. When Women Stood, thank you, Ben, uh, The Untold History of Females Who Changed Sports and the World. You can buy it online right now, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, yes. all the places where good books are sold. Alex, it's such a pleasure to chat. And actually, before we let you go, if people want to stay up to date with what you've got going on, social media, websites, where can people stay up to date with everything you've got going on? Yeah, you can always drop me a note. Uh, my website is www dot alexandra allred so there's two a's right there alexandra allred.com yeah and um yeah my it's on uh, amazon and just check it out I'd beautiful love it. beautiful can't recommend enough alex appreciate your time on the show today thanks for joining us yeah you are great thank you and a massive thanks to alex for her time as always if you wish to see the video version of that interview, you can check it out on our YouTube channel as well. And as I just mentioned, you can buy the book online right now. Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, you name it, you can buy it. Booktopia, I'm staring here at the page as well. And alexandraallred.com if you want more information about it. What a what an absolutely insightful chat there and an inspirational uh, athlete, author, all around good person there to learn everything about that as well. And uh, I'm so proud that Australians are known for farting people out of bobsled huts. So um, perhaps if I need to get Jared O'Colin off the line, I can uh, I can do that moving forward as well. So uh, massive thanks there to Alex for her time. And also a big shout out too to the people over at JRB Communications for connecting us with Alex, sending us a copy of the book and uh, being able to get this involved too. We very much appreciate their efforts in helping this come to place today. I love these episodes where I can be educated as well as read at the same time. I know there's jokes on our other podcasts about me not being able to read. Well, I've got to say to some of our co-hosts on this show, I think I've done more reading than any of them combined. So, um, Colin, Jared, if you're listening, pick your game up. <laughs> 
You need to read more books. That's all I'm saying. And you need to stay tuned to Off the Podium because we've got some great content coming your way still for the remainder of 2023. We're not going anywhere. We've got some great guests. We've got some great coverage coming up. Of course, we are only just over a month away from our very first coverage ever of a Pan American Games, the 2023 Pan Am Games happening in Santiago, Chile. And we are going to be covering them for the first time. Colin's taking the lead on those because he's obviously the man involved in that the most, being a Canadian. We still don't know how Jared and I are going to watch these, but we're going to do it somehow, some way. We've got plenty of our former guests who are going to be competing at those games. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. But so we're doing pretty much a similar coverage to what we did, say, with the Women's World Cup this year or we've done with Commonwealth Games in the past where it's not obviously going to be a daily episode type deal, but we will do at least a few episodes giving a bit of a preview, going over some of the reviews and uh, hopefully if Jared and I can watch the uh, opening and closing ceremonies, a bit of a ceremony review as well because, you know, we like to talk about the ceremonies. And speaking of ceremonies, next week here on Off the Podium, we are back into our classic opening ceremony review series. It's actually been a couple of months since we did Rio. I think that was back in May that we did that one. So uh, good to get back into these. So we are doing Calgary. We are going to the 1988 Winter Olympics hosted in Colin's beloved country of Canada, the Calgary 1988 opening ceremony Olympics. It's funny just there with Alex, obviously mentioned Cool Runnings a fair bit, of course, famous Olympics for Cool Runnings, the Jamaican bobsled team, of course, Eddie the Eagle, So uh, lots of famous moments that came from those Olympics. So very excited to watch that opening ceremony because I will be honest, it's one that I've not seen in full. I've seen some highlights of it over the years, been on the Olympic channel sometimes and just had it on in the background, but I can't say I've ever sat down and watched that one in full. So I am very intrigued to see how Canada did their first ever Winter Olympics the year after I was born. So I would have been a very little baby when that happened. So I am very excited to check that one out. And speaking of winter, speaking of winter athletes and great athletes following that, and again, I will reveal at the end of next week who it is because I've been teasing this for the last few weeks, but we will have a very, very, very big guest on this show who I'm very excited, multiple Olympian, prominent television host and commentator today. And somebody with a big connection to Eurovision. Again, I'm just I'm just pointing out there. I'm so looking forward to bringing this guest on the show, as I'm sure you will be for listening to them and watching them if you are going to do so on YouTube. Big thanks again to Alex for her time. Don't forget, while you are listening, to subscribe to the show. Where all good podcasts are available. Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Remember on YouTube as well, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and everything else out there. We always appreciate your feedback and support of the show. And we thank you for tuning in once again today. Shout out to the Birmingham Bull, to Jason Momoa. Remember to put a sock in at Mountain. And as always, go left. When the stars make it through just like pasta, pasta, some water. When you dance down the street with the cloud at your feet, you're in love. When you walk in a dream, but you know you're not dreaming, Signore. Excuse me, but you see back in old Napoli. That's amore.